Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. There is a triage system in place in terms of how police assess risk when a person is reported missing. And that assessment in turn determines the level that the police are prepared to go to in the early hours and early days to find these people. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up, a podcast dedicated to spreading awareness about issues that usually get swept under the rug. Today, we continue our series, Finding Shelley DeRoche. This episode is brought to you by Wearable Therapy by Toki. Here's your host, Carla Stevens-Tolstoy. Shelley DeRoche has been missing since January 2016. She was 41 years old at the time of her last sighting, in London, Ontario, Canada, around Hamilton Road, an area of the city well-known for its dangerous street-level sex trade. If you missed part one of the series, you can go back to learn more about Shelley's difficult life and how she was trafficked into sex work at a very young age. Now, in part two, we'll look at the timeline of her disappearance, the efforts being made to find her, and why Shelley's friends and family are frustrated with the police response. We'll also speak with former police officer, a reporter from London Free Press who's been covering Shelley's story, and we'll hear about one officer who spent years of her career doing what she could to keep sex workers safe in London. The timeline surrounding Shelley's disappearance and missing person case can be a little difficult to follow, mainly because conflicting information was reported. But here's what we do know. January 2nd, 2016, was the last day Shelley was seen by her friends. It was also the last day she was active on Facebook. And Shelley was on Facebook daily and posted daily. In the following day, Shelley's friends and family began their own efforts to spread awareness about her disappearance and attempt to find her. And the media coverage increased as well. On January 21st, they then reported her missing to the London police who say they began investigating immediately. However, a missing person's notice wasn't released until 12 days later. On January 29th, Shelley's Ontario disability check was deposited into her bank account and remained untouched. After that, police issued a missing person support with a description and photograph on February 1st, 2016. Initially, The report indicates Shelley was last seen either on January 2nd in the Bradley and Ernest Avenue area where she lived, or January 5th in the Hamilton Road area. Now, here's where things get confusing. Eventually, the missing person section on the London Police website was showing the first date, January 2nd, with a second location, Hamilton Road. When they issued an updated release in January of 2017, the anniversary of Shelley's disappearance and had no mention of a location and only kept the date January 2nd. This release also included a new dedicated tip line number which gave Shelley's friends and family 
some faint hope. But the mounting inconsistencies and confusion continued to frustrate them. Later in this episode, we'll look closer at the police response and hear what happened when I pushed them for answers. Also coming up, thanks to an anonymous donor, we find a way to collect our own tips directly. This is Stand Up Speak Up's Finding Shelley DeRoche, Part 2. Shelley Joy DeRoche! Our friend is missing! Today is a walk and a balloon release in awareness for Shelley Joy DeRoche. Shelly has been my friend since we were 13 years old. I've known Shelly for 28 years, and I miss my friend. That's the voice of Shelly's friend, Penny, who we spoke with in Part 1. In this video posted to Facebook by the London Free Press in January 2017, Penny and others were shown doing their best to keep up the awareness around Shelley's disappearance, a full year after she was last seen. Her friends and family had been doing things like this from the very beginning. Within days of Shelley's disappearance, they were searching, spreading flyers, knocking on doors, and whatever they could think of to try and bring Shelley home. The time period immediately following a disappearance is crucial, which is why Shelley's friends and family were frustrated at how slow the London police seemed to be moving. As mentioned, it took them 12 days to issue a missing person's notice after being notified about Shelley. I wanted to understand more about this. Could there be some seemingly legitimate reason or excuse for a 12-day delay? Or should the police absolutely have moved faster? Did Shelley's high-risk lifestyle have anything to do with it? To try and get some answers, I spoke with Dr. Michael Arnfield. Mike is an associate professor of criminology at Western University in London and was also an officer with the London police for nearly 16 years. He's written eight books and is the host of the show To Catch a Killer. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what you know about Shelley's disappearance or what you've heard or what your exposure to the story is? Well, when I was living in Nashville, her family and some friends got a hold of me via email, knowing that I'm an advocate for the missing, missing and uh, unsolved crimes, particularly cold case homicides and cold cases involving, in, in many cases, marginalized people who have sort of fallen through the cracks and no one ever really went looking for with any great degree of effort. So they were very frustrated, exacerbated about what they saw as police inaction, sort of uh, bureaucratic you know, wrangling that was essentially tying the case up in limbo and not a lot was being done. They also knew I had a unique perspective on this aside from my work on cold cases and having been a cop in London. And actually, when I was a major crimes detective in London, I had a remarkably similar case involving a woman who has still never been found. And that was my case. And I mean, she was never even reported missing until it had been three months since she had last been seen. So clearly was met with foul play. We're, we're confident and circumstances very similar to, to Shelley. But beyond that, her case, unfortunately, falls within the paradigm of what we've seen in London, really going back to the early 60s. And that's the, the focus of my book, Murder City, which looks at the homicidal history of London, Ontario, which is, I mean, people hear that and they think the forest city and they think, you know, it's an insurance town and a hockey town and a, and a party town and a university town. But in reality, it's also 
an outlier internationally in terms of serial murder. And every once in a while, you see a case uh, like Shelley's or like Catherine Bordado, who is, that was the case that I worked in uh, 2009, 2010. And you remember that really there is something about London that draws in people that uh, do this. And there are unfortunately a lot of vulnerable people, and we call them that, we call them vulnerable persons in London, like Shelley, who are at enhanced risk for being targeted by these offenders. How should a missing case be handled by the police? And how do you think they're currently handled? So as it stands now, there is a triage system in place in terms of how police assess risk when a person is reported missing. And that assessment in turn determines really the level that the police are prepared to go to in the early hours and early days to find these people. So there's a level one, level two, and level three missing people. Again, the score is elevated based on obvious risk factors. So if you have a patient AWOL from a mental health facility who has previously expressed interest in harming themselves, or you have, and this is probably more frequent in a lot of cities, you have a elderly patient with Alzheimer's or dementia or some other impairment who wanders away from a nursing home or from a hospital. These are obvious emergency situations, what we would call a level one missing person. In between, then, you get your runaway teenagers, you get your people who are overdue on either passes from the military or overdue on curfews. And really, the narrative surrounding how that person is reported missing determines, number one, if the police actually think they're missing. And we see this a lot in Murder City, my last book, and Mad City, my forthcoming book, where in a lot of cases, they just refuse to accept the notion that they were missing. And, you know, that they must have run away or, you know, some type of supposition. So if they are determined to actually be missing, then any number of investigative steps can be taken. So if the person's been gone a couple days or a couple weeks for, for sure, there are some cursory checks that a first responder can make or a missing persons detective can make. But in most Canadian cities, if there is any suggestion of foul play, so, for instance, someone reported missing months later, and there's been no bank activity. They have not been seen at their usual hangouts. They've not been in contact with friends or family. Pinging their phone reveals nothing. Uh, the phone bill hasn't been paid, etc. Then that should immediately, and is in most cases based on the current adequacy standards, turned over to a major case, major crimes, or homicide detective because we're immediately dealing with a case or should be recognized that we're dealing with a case that involves someone who is likely met with foul play or who has gone missing through no fault or intention of their own. What do you think the police should be doing right now in regards to Shelley? Well, it's easy to, to armchair quarterback, but there's just not willingness to admit there's a problem and raise the alarm, not only in London, but in Canada generally. There's just a completely different attitude among law enforcement. They don't provide timely information to the public. They don't keep family members and uh, the public abreast. There's exceptions to that. Toronto police are actually really excellent, but they're also the only police service with a dedicated cold case unit. And they know how to sort of strategically release new information. They know how to exploit social media to really 
sort of garner tips and keep the public involved and keep these cases in the light. On the other end of the spectrum, you have, you know, an organization like the Ontario Provincial Police that is you know, dangerously inept. And I haven't spoken to, and I've spoken to dozens of, you know, family members of missing and murdered people. And they essentially have been re-victimized again and again by these OPP, quote-unquote, detectives who, quite frankly, I, I don't know what they do there for the most part, day in and day out. Again, look at the Toronto Police by comparison. They will talk to anybody. They will release information knowing that, you know, that you're not going to release the holdback information and inspire copycats and false confessions. But you can't solve these cases. If it's been a couple months, certainly if it's been a couple of years, you can't solve these cases without public input. I mean, just sit, sit around and put your feet up and wait for a DNA hit to automatically be made in the national data bank. You know, that may or may not ever happen. In the meantime, you have an obligation to cultivate new leads using, again, public sources. Try to get some tips called in. Try to, uh, again, develop sources in the community that can help you solve these cases. I mean, this is not rocket science. This, you know, has been how cases have been solved for a hundred years. And yet they still are completely circumspect. They won't say anything. And this is precisely when these families come to me and they say, you know, we have been treated worse by uh, the investigators who are tasked with doing these investigations than I suspect if they ever catch this person that killer will be treated by the system. I mean, they, they really are re-victimized. And is the podcast In the Dark uh, has done a good job of sort of finding similar police departments who behave in similar fashion. And not surprisingly, they all have very low solved rates. Uh, they all have a lot of other personnel issues. And as was said on one episode featuring the Murder Accountability Project, actually, where our founder, Tom Hargrove, was interviewed, they said, the police force you get is the one you get it's the one you're stuck with and depending on where you live you get you know a, a top tier detective or you get whoever through sort of bad luck is in charge in that jurisdiction and what you really see in ontario in particular is a two-tiered policing system where there's you know forces like toronto and waterloo uh, and then you know the rural areas that get sort of substandard policing well you know when i was looking at the Shelley case, the one thing that kind of was thinking was, I don't know if I want to take on a Canadian missing story because I just don't have the access. Because if I'm dealing with an American story, I get faster access to everything. And the thing about taking on the Shelley is like, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to, you know, ask the, the official people to give me their comments? I just assume it's going to be a lot harder. Like, I, I'm just like, okay, that's why I was going to ask you your advice. How do you recommend I ask the London police on status updates or you're going to get the same stock answer. It's an open investigation. You may get a, a bit more. You may get an investigator who's willing to speak to you in guarded fashion. If that happens, it's because essentially they're feeling pressure to either from the family or they don't want to be publicly embarrassed. So it won't be out of good. It won't be done in good faith is my guess. But you're right. In the U.S., things move a lot faster. They understand that freedom of the press is a cornerstone of their society and that the public has an obligation and a right to be kept informed. Uh, if for no other reason, and there's case law in Canada on this with in Toronto, and you, you have, have to wonder if maybe this is why Toronto is much better at this now, but Toronto Police was successfully sued many years ago for, again, holding back evidence in the case of a serial rapist that they knew was active. They knew that 
some information should have been made public if for no other reason, even if it didn't mean necessarily catching the offender, to keep the public informed as to the MO so that they could, for instance, in the summertime, lock a certain window that was uh, a common point of entry. And they failed to do that and they were sort of held to account for it and cost them a lot of money when you know further victims were attacked and they allowed it to happen. But we're seeing in, again, smaller cities, including London, which is a, a sizable city but is comparatively smaller, and certainly in the rural areas, that there just isn't that type of legal and media presence to sort of keep them honest. And they get away with a lot, including not keeping the public informed to an extent that would keep the public safe. So I very much encourage you know, any reporter, podcaster or member of you know, a, the regular news media to keep on them. And, and to keep demanding answers. And that's really the only way to to sort of keep the ball rolling. And, and someone has to do it. So uh, I, I would urge you to to keep doing that. It's, again, not as easy as the U.S. You're going to face some difficulty, but yeah, you have to try. Mike has a lot more insight about the case, and we'll hear from him later in the series. Up next, I'll share what happened when I contacted London Place to find out more about Shelley's case. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about, and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, We created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. Welcome back to Stand Up, Speak Up. Part 2 of Finding Shelley DeRoche. Continuing on the topic of police is the response I got from the London police when I inquired about Shelley's case. I was attempting to arrange a phone call with the London police, but was unsuccessful. I emailed them a list of questions ahead of time for review before hopefully chatting with them on the phone for the podcast. I got an email response from the detective sergeant in charge of London Police Service Major Crime Section. It included no direct answers to any of my questions and contained the line, as Mike predicted, that's an active investigation 
and they won't be going into specifics. The sergeant told me that this investigation was being conducted in accordance with the Ontario Major Case Manual, which I could find online. He said they are seeking a positive resolution and the investigation will remain open until Shelley is found or they've run out of leads to investigate. He also mentioned the dedicated tip line for Shelley and that all information is welcome. When I pushed again for a phone call, I was directed to London Police Service Media Officer for any further inquiries. I was beginning to think, maybe we have to take things into our own hands if we are ever going to uncover anything that wasn't already reported. And sometimes people are more comfortable talking to people that are not in the police force. Because a lot of vulnerable people are actually very intimidated and very frightened of the police. Somebody very familiar in dealing with the London police is Randy Richmond. Randy works the London Free Press newspaper and has been following Shelley's case from the very beginning. He was also curious why it took so long for a missing person's notice to be issued. The police didn't put out a missing person's notice at the beginning, and we at the paper were pushing them to ask why, you know, why, why are you not doing this yet? And one of the, some of the responses were a bit unusual. Uh, one of the responses was that, well, the media and the friends and family are doing so much that we don't have to. And the police were waiting, seemed to be waiting for some sort of official confirmation before they made an official missing persons. And that confirmation came on January the 29th when Shelley did not access her bank account to collect her monthly payment. So February the 1st, 12 days after she was reported missing, police put out that official missing persons notice. And it's key because it's a very important thing when police do that because it, it makes it more real to the public. It also has descriptions that we didn't have. It also has information that we didn't have in the media and dates when she was last seen, seen things like that. And I asked the police why it took so long and, and why a sex worker was not a higher priority. And I never did get a straight answer. Uh, the priorities for the London police are if a person is a senior, Alzheimer's, if it's cold out, things like that. And despite everything that's happened in Canada with sex workers, it didn't seem that being a sex worker uh, put you at the top of the list uh, when you went missing. And I don't know if there's, I mean, there's always been this traditional attitude that, you know, sex workers come and go, which they do, and they go underground and, and, and sometimes they're gone for a couple weeks at a time. But this one in particular seems strange because the family and friends were insistent that they were often in contact with Shelly and it wasn't like her to not at least call uh, and notify them where she was. So this is one of a, a strange case. It took police a long time to make it official. And when they did make it official, they made some uh, errors, friends and family say, in her description. And they didn't include this particular way that Shelly walked. Uh, Shelly had a, a, I guess you would call it a pigeon toe. She just walked funny. It was quite noticeable, her friends and family say. And to me, it was something that even a novice amateur sleuth like myself would have put in a description right away. To me, it's something that uh, if somebody has an unusual walk, it's something that a member of the public would notice if they saw her walking down the street. So the fact that it was, wasn't put in at first was also kind of puzzling. But then the whole thing's been puzzling right from the start. I mean, if we talk about the police a little bit, you know, I've been trying to get hold of them. I've not been allowed to to talk to them and, and get any of their opinion, which I find frustrating because I think the least they can do is answer the call and and say whether they're not comfortable answering the question, but they won't even take my calls. Do you find it's difficult to get through to them or do you get a lot more respect because you're the London Free Press? 
when we get we get some respect because we're London Free Press, we also have times periods where we're not getting along very well. It can be difficult to get beyond sort of the police spokesperson. And traditionally, the police spokespeople at the at the police force have been good and have done a good job. But it's a very it's it's very close. It's very difficult for us to get higher ranking officers to speak. The investigators are totally behind closed doors. Very difficult to get them to comment. Very difficult to reach them to have access to them to talk about cases. It all goes through the public relations person, uh, who is a constable, and who has you know limited access to the information as well. You know when there's huge huge stories, perhaps the chief will comment. Uh, when there's budget stories, the police and deputy chiefs will comment. But that sort of middle ground investigations, it, it's it's been hard for us to get investigators. I want to support the police. I'm glad we have a police force. I think the police do an amazing job. I don't want to be a negative person that kind of craps on the police because I do have a lot of respect for the force, but I do find it hard when I hear rumors right from the street level that some of the addicts have said and and even put on on recorder that the police will come along and, and take their weed and take their cash, but leave their their meth with them and their their harder drugs. Maybe that's not the truth. Maybe it's just a, a meth head talking, but maybe it's not. Do you trust the police? Not really. No, I don't no. either. No? No. What, what would make you not want to trust the police? The fact that they'd steal my weed, but they'd leave my gym. Leave a harder drug with me than give me my weed back. But you confiscate weed, but you give me back my jib, which is crystal. Like, something's wrong here. Well, why would they do that, do you think? So I they can know. smoke the weed, or? I hope so. It was good weed. Then I hear that, and then I read in the London Free Press that a woman is suing the London police force because she was sexually assaulted and they didn't take it seriously. And then I hear rumors that the police have been inappropriate with girls on the street. And I just think, okay, well, you know, that's a lot going on in one town. You raise some interesting points, and it's it is it's hard to get a handle on because the London police force has had a good reputation for domestic violence over the years, and then along comes this story broken by the Globe and Mail about the, the the lack of you know believing women who are claiming they were sexually uh, assaulted, and you know that was kind of a shock. That was a shock. To lots of uh, women's groups in London who have a good relationship with the police, you hear that you see that story, and that's no, that that story is proven by statistics. So that that story is, is real. You do hear stories. I mean, I've heard stories from dealers about being ripped off, and you know, I have a great respect for London police as well. But you, you wonder if there's some out there who are doing this. I mean, it could be just dealers talking. There's been a few years ago there was a widespread rumor about certain officers and not many, but some trading, you know, sexual favors, telling the woman that they'd be charged if they didn't give them sex, things like that. Now that's an old, old rumor in police forces probably across North America. And it certainly has been court cases in other jurisdictions that have proven that to happen. This particular rumor though, it had enough legs to get the province's special investigations unit into the city to investigate claims by sex workers that police were using their power over them, hence 
getting favors from them, getting drugs from them, in, you know, in exchange for letting them off the hook, so, so to speak. There were some names floating around. There, you know, certain officers. Uh, the special investigations unit did come in to investigate. Nothing came of it. I did investigated what I could. Could not find out anything but rumors. You know, some of the women, you know, told me things, but you know, it's, it's very difficult to prove. And certainly, we're not going to go with a story like that unless we had proof. And the special investigation unit, you know, is certainly not going to be charging any officers unless they had proof. But, you know, there's always that kind of talk. Okay, what would the proof need to be for a cop to get prosecuted for that? What kind of proof would they need? You need would need a sex worker to be willing to testify against the police. And I got to tell you that that's not a very common thing to happen. And I that's certainly a difficult thing to happen. I mean, the street-level sex workers in London have an unusual relationship with the police here because the police, for some of them, the police are their best shot at being safe because the police are the ones who pay attention to them. I've heard this from sex workers saying that, you know, the cops give us a hard time, but at least they know we're out there. Nobody else does. Um, other sex workers say that the police are, are terrible to them. Did Shelley ever confide in you about the police and she thought that they were taking advantage of women on the street? No, I never got, I never could reach her. Um, I, I knew her name and I, I knew I wanted to talk to her. Um, and I just, I never did reach her. And when that's why when she went missing, I thought, I know that name. And she was on the list of women that I tried to reach and, and could not. And very, you know, very sad about many reasons about the story. And I wish I had talk, spoken to her then, but no, I never did. I never did know what she knew. And, I don't know what she would have said. Now, all of the girls are very close to a police officer. Her first name was Lorna. Right. Sergeant Lorna Bruce was the the head of the what the police called the at-risk program. Basically, that program to connect the police with street-level sex workers. It was actually launched partly in response to what happened in, in British Columbia when so many sex workers went missing and no one really kept track. It was a great response. And Sergeant Lorna Bruce, over the years, and a lot of hard work, built up a very good relationship with most of the women out there. Um, she was a sort of a tireless advocate for them. I mean, she had to enforce the law. So if they were caught dealing or whatever, they you know, they're going to get caught. But she would go out every day and, and contact with, make contact with them to try to help them anything. Eventually, a, a doctor with uh, an agency downtown in her community health center started going out with her. And, you know, this doctor and that's program still continuing, by the way, this, this doctor and the police officer go out there and, and you can get all kinds of help on the spot. And sometimes it just meant, you know, buying the person a bus ticket that day or, or a snack and talking. And eventually, people would start to, people, women started to trust her and started doing what they could to get out of the trade or at least get some housing and some safety. Um, she didn't push sort of the getting out of the trade. It wasn't hardcore, like, you must get out before I help you. It was sort of more, I'll help you as you decide what you want to do. And, you know, Lorna had a, um, I guess I should call her Sergeant Bruce, but I became kind of friends with her. Lorna had a, uh, a wall in her office of the photographs of, missing and uh, deceased sex workers, street sex workers, 
Um, I can't remember how many there were on it. Obviously, far too many, but a lot. And that was kind of her daily reminder of what she was up against. And, you know, a lot of these women died from other reasons. Some had been uh, killed. Uh, some were overdosed. Some were the, the diseases that come with drugs and sex work and living on the street. But it was it was a very sad and impressive collection of photographs. And so, and so she took it to heart. And about the same time that Charlie disappeared, Lorna was on a leave, a personal leave of some kind. And um, I only found this out later because I was frantically calling her at the time, as were many other people. And uh, Shelley disappeared, and you know, it became apparent that this disappearance was, you know, not not a fortune, not going to have a fortunate ending. And soon after, to the timing, but not long after, uh, Sergeant Lorna Bruce retired from the force. Um, she been she you know had to put in her years, and. Um, so I've, and I've never been able to talk to her about it. I've never been able to reach her since to talk about Shelley, but I, I've heard that they were close, as she is close with many of, as close with many of the women um, there. And, you know, as you know from talking to people, Shelley was a very bubbly, friendly person, and everybody loved her. She was a very sunny person. People just were naturally drawn to her. And I, I believe, and, I'm, you know, I'm just stuck. I don't, don't know for sure, but I believe that she and Sergeant uh, Bruce were were good enough friends that Sergeant Bruce would have taken it quite to heart as she would any other woman going. Well, I was reading some of your your articles that you wrote for the London Free Press, and I mean, you write a, a lot about the need for harm prevention, and that maybe Shelley missing, or maybe maybe these other girls missing, could kind of create better services for the girls. Yes, yeah, probably because of, of Lorna Bruce's efforts and the recognition that there were so many woman on the street anywhere from the last five years, an estimated 150 to 200. A group of city agencies, more than 20, got together a couple of years ago and decided to create this, what's called the Street Level Woman at Risk Project. And what, they're very focused on harm reduction. And they want to get women who want to, they want to get those women houses, their apartments, housing first, and then work on supporting them to with their addiction, if they want to exit the trade, great. If not, they don't push them. So this has only been going on for really for about a year now. About the same, it was launched two years ago, but it really kicked into gear about the same time Shelley disappeared. So it's been working, and it's got I think about twenty six women housed so far. It's going to take a long time to get you know everybody wants it housed. They they they're still starting up, but Shelley's disappearance. Also, sort of having around the same time they're kicking the gear. But they were they were starting this program before she disappeared, recognizing the risks that these women faced. But Shelley's disappearance sort of also ignited a couple other uh, reactions. Uh, it didn't seem to change the way the police, at least officially, the way the police report missing sex workers or missing people. It seems to be I I could never get the police to. Uh, to acknowledge that they might change how they approached their criteria for putting people at the top of the list. But it did shock her disappearance. And because she was very well-known and very well-liked, her disappearance shocked uh, agencies, homeless and agencies and women's agencies. And they decided that they needed a better system of, of notifying each other when somebody went missing. Because, you know, if you're in an agency that treats homeless women and, and somebody doesn't show up for a couple of weeks, you may not think anything of it. 
But, you know, if you report that to another agency who says, well, they heard this, said this person was in trouble, word will get around. So they've actually come up with a protocol of sharing information, kind of a, you know, I'm not sure if it's a phone tree or how it works exactly, but it's basically they've actually set, a, you know, said this is how we're going to do things. When, when you notice someone's missing or you're worried about someone missing, you will contact these agencies as well. So that was a really good first step. There is unfortunately here still, there's still no bad date, bad John line, hotline. Different groups have their own ones and they share it with each other, but it's no sort of official one where everybody would know to call. And it's, it's been blocked for years by the politics of the sex trade in this city. And it's, it's you know, a lot of advocates for the woman think it would be a wonderful thing, uh, but doesn't exist yet. And so it's still, you know, still lots of danger out there for women. And, you know, Shelley, as you know, is not the only sex worker to go missing in London over the past decade. Randy's referring to two other women known to live a high-risk lifestyle who appear next to Shelley on the missing person section of the London Police website. Catherine Bordado was last seen in 2009, Vanessa Fotheringham in 2012, and Shelley DeRoche in 2016. A murder charge was laid in the death of Vanessa Fotheringham, but her body was never found. According to the London Police, their investigations have determined that there is no connection between any of the cases. But this does raise the question of whether or not enough is being done to keep London sex workers safe. The story of work done by Sergeant Lorna Bruce, who headed a program to do just that, was a positive sign. But such a high number of disappearances is concerning. It reminds us of the horrific Robert Picton trial out of British Columbia, Canada. Picton gruesomely murdered as many as 49 women, and the case led to a review of the police response. It found that the Vancouver police and RCMP failed to handle the investigation correctly. They likely could have arrested Picton much sooner, but instead, he was able to continue taking innocent lives. Vancouver police eventually apologized on behalf of everyone involved with the investigation. Now, Carla speaks with a friend of Shelley's named Jamie to get some insight about Shelley's relationship with the police. She was quite close with Lorna, which is the police officer that managed the task force, correct? That that looked after the girls on the street? Yeah, I, I met Lorna, Lorna one time when she was running the task force and they had a pretty good relationship, um, well, Lorna did, with girls on the street. They... Um, um, weren't there to bust them. They were there to basically count their numbers, make sure that they were safe, uh, try to keep the bad jobs away, watch the traffic, if you will. I mean, I don't mean like car traffic, but like just drug traffic and get a, get a sense of smell that, you know, um, that the girls can come to the police if they were uh, either being bothered by particular um, bad clients or or even if there were bad drugs on the street, that they can go to the to the, to the police about that. So there was a good relationship, I felt. At least Shelly had said uh, to me that she um, she appreciated Lorna's support for the street. In the year before she disappeared, I didn't see a lot of her because of, at this time she was you know, a heavy, heavy user. Uh, her hardcore is what is what you call it. And uh, she was a heavy user at that time, so there was just wasn't any room for her, her friendship. But in that last year, she had told me that there was a police officer who who seemed to cop an attitude with with her and 
and follow her around even at times and harass her. And she had told me once that um, she was coming back from a binge and um, the cab driver had let her off in front of her place. And the, the police officer was actually waiting, waiting for her. And uh, the police officer had gotten out and harassed the cab driver. So she had turned around and confronted the police officer while he was harassing the cab driver. And, you know, basically asked the police officer to leave the cab driver alone. He's got nothing to do with it. It, it. There was just a bad, bad situation there. And it, and it wasn't the one time she told me, she said, this was accumulation of events. That's just an example of one. And it was just the one officer and the one officer had threatened her and said, well, in a kind of threat saying, if you don't get off the streets or if you don't, out of this area, bad things are going to happen. And you can look at that as a threat or you can look at that as, as, as a handy warning, however you want to deal with that, right? And it was left like that, but Kelly didn't get a good, very good feeling from this man at all. Was this just a warning or a threat? And was there any foul play by anyone on the police force? That's just one possibility we'll explore next time in part three of Finding Shelley DeRoche. London police admit they've put over a thousand hours into this case, but we still wonder if enough is being done. So I took things into my own hands. Police can only do so much with their resources, it's not reasonable to expect them to put up billboards for every missing person. But we could, and that's what we did. Thanks to an anonymous donor, we were able to get two billboards put up in the London area with Shelley's picture and an email address we created for tips. Next time, in Part 3, we'll have an update on our billboards and whether or not we received any tips, and we'll explore the possibilities of what may have happened to Shelley. Mike Arnfield joins us again to give his expert opinion, plus we'll hear from others who have their own ideas. Thanks so much to Mike and Randy for their time and help, and thank you for listening. Finding Shelley DeRoche continues next time on Stand Up Speak Up. That concludes part two of Stand Up Speak Up's Finding Shelley DeRoche series. For more about Shelley, visit StandUpSpeakUpToki.com. There you can also leave a comment if you have anything to share about this series. In our bonus content today, hear more of Carla's conversation with Randy from the London Free Press as they talk about harm reduction. Stay tuned.
was Kathy Lowe, When I Am No More, on Stand Up, Speak Up. For your bonus content today, a little more of Carla's conversation with Randy from the London Free Press as he talks about harm reduction in London. Do you think that London wants to recognize the issues they have and the, these women that need protection? Like, how do you think they're treated by the local community? And I think there's a, 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 a segment of, of London, especially on the street, service workers and advocates for women who care deeply uh, over what happens with the sex workers and have worked together, as I said, to create better conditions for them. They face, of course, the general public's um, sort of disregard for them. I know that that as hard as agencies are working to help, and, that, and they're doing a good job here, you know, there's still lots of stigma attached to it, addicts. Addicted people still complain when they go to emergencies and sex workers among them that when they go to emergency rooms, they're treated poorly by frontline healthcare staff. The hospitals are trying to change that. I know that, uh, you know, that, 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 you know, different agencies will still sort of treat them poorly, but most, um, most in this city seem committed to helping sex workers, especially the street level sex workers. With with you know with their addictions with their housing, so it seems to, the tide seems to have turned here over the last couple of years. I believe that Sergeant Lorna Bruce was for a long time, uh, and with her doctor uh, who's changed it um, over the years, that were like kind of lone voices in the wilderness, so to speak. Um, and the the media has has slowly changed, uh, well, like changed a bit to help out. And I believe the agencies are coming, there are many, many organizations, agencies are coming on board, but it's still, you know, going to be an uphill battle. Um, you know, when you say that you've worked for a year and you've got 26 women housed, some people think that's not really enough um, and that you should be working harder. And there's always going to be stigma. And, you know, the women are, can be difficult clients to deal with. They've been traumatized. They've been addicted for a long time. Um, they're facing all kinds of struggle with poverty and housing and addictions and mental health. So it's not, it's not, they're not always easy to, well, they're definitely not easy to help often. But I think that London on the one hand has that desire to help, but you know, London also has obviously with disappearing women and men as well. There's been some men disappear. Um, there's obviously a dark side as there is to any city. And that dark side is claimed well, at least three sex workers and at least a couple men over the past uh, decade or so. Thanks again for listening to Stand Up, Speak Up.
I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.